Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We are continuing. We'll actually finish Romans chapter 5 today. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 21, a, a very large section of Scripture that uh, is very hard to understand. A lot of, a lot of discrepancies, a lot of questions, uh, maybe discrepancy wasn't the right word, a lot of questions that come out of this text, people trying to understand the, the meaning of these verses that, that Paul is talking about the gospel and hope and, and what hope and how hope plays into all of this. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse number 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you for this word. Open our hearts to hear a word from you. We ask these things in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, please be seated. As we read, normally we don't read this many verses together but as we're studying this, we, we must understand that verses 12 and 21, they, they go together. They, 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 they fit together. And so we can't divide them up. So we have a really big portion of Scripture that we have to go through here today. And so we're going to be here for about four or five hours. I hope that's okay. No, I'm kidding. In the time that we have here today, I, I want to share with you the three points that I see Paul bringing out here. First of all, Paul says that Adam ruined life. Adam ruined life. Uh, verses 12 through 14 talk about how Adam messed everything up. When you stop and think about creation, it, it's a very neat thing to see how God created everything. The Bible says in uh, Genesis chapter 1 that God created things by his word. In fact, he spoke them into existence. He, he created something out of nothing. So on day one, he created the light and the darkness. He spoke it into existence, and there was light, and there was darkness. On day two, he, he created the, the oceans and the, the, the firmament, the, the oceans and the sky. On day three, he created dry land. He spoke it into existence, and dry land came up. On day four, he created the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavenly places. He, he spoke them into existence, and they, they existed, and they were in the right place at the right time, moving in the right area, and 
Then on day five, he created the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and he created all the, the, the fish and the birds. Then on day six, he created land animals, spoke them into existence, spoke them, and it was. Then it came time for him to create his greatest creation, Adam. And how did God create Adam? Did he speak Adam into existence? No, how was Adam formed? He was formed from the creation itself. The first thing that God created that was formed from creation itself was man. That's a powerful thing. There's many uh, thoughts as to why that was. Why was it that God created man? God created man out of his creation, not because he thought that man was an afterthought, far be it, because in fact it tells us that God created man in his image, he created man. I believe it was because man's desire has always been to be his own God. And so God put even a further separation from him and man by creating him from the creation itself, from the dust from the dust. Of the ground, he created man. The Bible says that after he created Adam, Adam wasn't a mistake. He wasn't an afterthought. In fact, he, he gave Adam, he gave Adam the most important job that he, he never gave to anything else that he created. He said to Adam, I, I want you to move, I want you to walk, I want you to rule, I want you to subdue and name everything. So Adam began to name. <laughs> that, that was his job. He saw some camels come up. He goes, well, that looks like a camel. I want to call those things ostriches. Don't you wish that when he saw the mosquitoes come by, he just went, <laughs> take care of those. <laughs> he said, those look like mosquitoes. He had a job. God gave Adam a purpose. He gave him an occupation. You see, this is why occupation is so important to men. When women come around, it's all about relationship. But for men, we have to subdue. There's something within us that we have got to win. We have a two-year-old little boy. His name is Elijah. We have a six-year-old girl. Her name is Abigail. And Elijah loves to tackle his sister. Sarah goes, what did you teach that boy? I said, I didn't teach it. It comes natural. He's a boy. He likes to tackle her and put her on the ground and get on top of her and say, I win. And Abigail's on the ground saying, can we just be friends? You see, that's the difference between boys who want to rule and win and girls who just want to be friends, just want a relationship. If you take a man and he has no purpose, no occupation, you see, men, men think we are what we do. That's why when you give a man a title, his chest swells. He has position. You put a business card in the hand of a man, he's going to give it to you whether you want it or not. Why? Because we become, become proud of our occupation, of our position. Adam's occupation was naming the animals. So after he finished, he noticed something. He said, something's not right. These camels, they come in pairs. There's two camels. 
There's two mosquitoes. There's two ostriches. And then he looked at himself. He said, you know, they're, they're different, but they're similar. There's two. They're, they're, they look the same, but they're, they're different, but they're similar. And then he looked at himself and he said, everybody has a mate except for me. And for the first time in all of eternity, we find a negative. God looked at man and he said, this ain't good. It's just not good. It's not good for man to be alone, alone, all own, all one. You add another L in that word alone, and that's what that word literally means, all one. Alone means all one. So it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be all one. There's only one of Adam. And then he said, that's not good. God is one, and, and that's good, right? It's good for God to be one, but it's not good for man to be one. God said it's not good for man to be by himself, to be all alone. So God took out of man and created woman. Think about this. How did he create man? Out of his creation. So he created the woman out of his creation man that came out of the creation earth. And then God gave us a marriage principle, a marriage principle that I preach to young couples over and over and over again. One of the main reasons why so many young, young marriages end early is because they forget the principle outlined in Genesis, which says, for this reason, you shall leave your father and mother and you will come together as one flesh. Now stop for just a moment. We know that this was not simply just an antidote for Adam and Eve to follow, right? I mean, th th this is a principle that God set up from the beginning that still holds merit even today. It, it would not have just applied to Adam and Eve. In fact, I wonder what Adam would have thought when he heard God give this instruction, leave your father and mother. Can you hear Adam? What in the world is a father and a mother? <laughs> Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. They were created. So you see, this principle wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It was a principle for all of us. Adam and Eve were given this principle, but it's for all of us. So God lays this principle that, that we're married, that when we're married, we leave our mother, we leave our father, and we cleave. You, you come together as one. Here's the principle. I, I wish I had more time to unpack it, but I want to give this to you. It's of utmost importance for all of us, especially young people to grasp, and it's, it's this. You only have the right to cleave when you have the discipline to leave. You only have the right to cleave when you have the discipline to leave. You cannot be married to each other when you're still listening to other main influencers. I'm not saying that you don't seek counsel and, and wisdom from the outside. Yes, you seek counsel. Yes, you seek wisdom. We still love our parents. We still honor our parents. We still respect our parents. But marriage is when the two come together and they become one. And parents, you have just as much to do with this as that young couple does. You've got to learn to let it go. Now, that's easier said than done, isn't it? I'm looking in the face of some men who had to let your daughter go. I'm not looking forward to that day. Abigail is six, and I am not looking forward to the day when she brings that little boy home. I feel sorry for that little boy. <laughs> Have I told you what I did to Abigail when she was about one and a half? 
I wrote out a contract and I said, my name is Abigail Catherine Baldwin and on this day, I promise before God and my daddy that I will not date a man until I'm 55 years old. And you think I'm joking, it's in my safe deposit box. I, I put a line and with a crayon, you can't really tell it says Abigail, but it says, I, I've got a video of it as well. She signed it. I figure by the age of 55, I'll be long gone and she can date whoever she wants to by then. But you see, I, 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 I get that for men and for dads to, to let go of your daughter, that, that's, a, that's a hard thing. But, but following this great principle of marriage set up by God, we, 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 we see that God sets up this wonderful principle that we are to leave and we are to cleave. And then right after that, you turn the next page and what happens? It's the temptation, the fall of man. I hear people say, well, it was the, the forbidden fruit. <laughs> like there was something rotten in the fruit. The, the fruit wasn't rotten. The heart was rotten. The sin was the disobedience to God. The sin occurred when Eve decided in her heart that she would be disobedient. When, when, when Adam decided in his heart he was going to be disobedient to God. Then, of course, they followed through with it, and, and sin entered into creation. And when sin entered into creation, we understand that there were now consequences to sin, many consequences to sin. But the greatest consequence that came because of sin was death. Death is now a reality, not just physical death, but spiritual death. And this is Paul's point. Look back at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, not just physical death, but spiritual death, spiritual alienation, an eternity separated from God. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Paul says all sin. That, that looks like the past tense uh, to us, but, but it's in the Greek. It's actually the aorist tense. Aorist tense is a form of past tense in the English language, but, but it's something more. I mean, we see that this is in the past tense, right? It's not present uh, sinning. It's not will sin in the future. It's those have sinned. You see that, right? It's in the past tense. But the aorist tense means that it, 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 it's important because it tells us something about original sin. The aorist verb in, in the Greek language tells us it's a completed action in the past. In other words, when he says that all have sinned, it takes us back to a, a specific point in the past that that happened. And Paul's point here is not a, a point in, in our own physical life when we sin. No, he, he takes it back even further. He, he's telling us that the action of Adam and Eve means that we all sinned with Adam and Eve. That's powerful. We sinned alongside of Adam and Eve. You say, well, how in the world can I be held responsible for something I didn't do? I wasn't alive thousands of years ago. How can I be held responsible? Paul says here in Romans chapter 5 that you were there, I was there, and we did the sin. The name Adam in Hebrew means mankind. There was a legitimate person named Adam, a legitimate woman named Eve. But, but they represented all of mankind as well when they fell. Yes, we would have done the same thing Adam and Eve did, and we would have messed up probably a whole lot sooner than they did. But Paul takes us a step further. He doesn't just say that we would have done it. He said, thou art the man. You are Adam. Ladies, you are Eve. We fell in the garden when they fell too. In the loins of Adam. From the, 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 the births of Eve, we inherited their sin. And this is what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 and 13. 
Now, this would be a great time for him to turn the positive because this is, this is rough stuff, but he, he wants to dig even further into our sin. And notice what he says in verse 13. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I want us to put on our thinking caps for just a moment. This is a difficult verse to understand. In fact, one of the most difficult verses in the Bible, some people say, to understand. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. Let's read it again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. What's Paul saying in verse 13? Is Paul saying that sin was not counted against us before or until the law was given? From, from Adam to Moses was several thousand years. So Paul, you're telling me that from Adam to Moses that they, they weren't culpable for their sin? Well, that can't be right, right? I mean, what was the greatest consequence? What did we just establish was the greatest consequence to sin? Death. Well, Adam wasn't alive when Moses was receiving the law. Nor was Abraham, nor, nor was Noah. You see, men and women from, from the time when Adam and Eve fell all the way until the time the law was given, men and women were dying because they were held responsible for their sin, even before the law came into existence. So what does Paul mean in verse 13? Let me give you an illustration and help us to think through what, what he's talking about here. Imagine a young couple with me. They get married, and they don't give much thought to their finances. They, they don't spend lavishly. I mean, they're not going out buying uh, expensive cars and expensive homes or anything, but they don't really live according to a budget. So, so five years down the road, they look at their financial situation, and they realize that their small purchases have now snowballed, and now they have a mountain of credit card debt. So they do what any normal human being would do. When you look at your financial situation and you see that you have this massive debt, you create a ledger. You take a piece of paper and you draw a line right down the middle. On the one side, you write down your income, all the, all the places that you receive income. On the other side, you write down all of your expenses and you total them up. And what they quickly realized is they were spending more money than what they were bringing in. My good friend who is now in heaven, Zig Ziglar, we served alongside of him at Prestonwood. He always would say, Wesley, if your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. And that's what was happening in this fictitious couple's life. They weren't bad. They weren't spending frivolously, but, but, but they weren't living on a budget. And so their small expenditures began to mound up, and it became a massive ball of debt. And so they look at it, and, and so their, their, their outgo was exceeding their income. They, they were spending more than they were bringing in. Therefore, their upkeep was being their downfall. They, they, they were going out of control. So let me ask this question. When this couple created the ledger, what, what changed when that couple saw the ledger? When they saw that piece of paper, their income and their expenses, what changed? Did their financial situation change? Did, when, when, once you create that, that ledger, were they completely debt-free now? <laughs> no. Not their financial situation. They were still in debt. The only thing that changed was their awareness, their complete awareness of their debt. Their status never changed. You see, what, what Paul's telling us here in Romans chapter 5, verse 13, is that the law is a moral ledger that brings to our attention the law and the reality of all mankind's sin. But what about those who live before the law? Well, with or without the ledger, with or without the law, man is still in debt because of his sin. 
all the law did was to put it on paper to make us fully aware of how bad the situation really was. That's what Paul's point is in Romans 5.12. Does that make sense? So Adam ruined life. He ruined it all. We were there with him. We ruined it too. But the great news is that Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus rescued life. Paul sets out here to contrast Adam and Jesus. He said, Adam's action brings condemnation. Jesus' action brings salvation. To put it another way, Adam's action brought death, while Jesus' action brings life. Jesus is God's answer to man's greatest problem. Throughout time, man has always struggled trying to live forever, trying to discover that fountain of youth or eating certain foods or, or taking diet pills or putting mud on our face and all over our body. Anything we can do to stay young. Man's greatest enemy seems that he cannot beat death. And the reason why we cannot beat death and we will never be able to beat death is because this was the curse, the judgment that was placed on us by God himself. Have you ever thought about this? Why, why do we want to live? Why is it that breathing is an involuntary action? That under normal circumstances, humans always choose life over death? The reason is because we were created originally by God to live forever. As we already said, death is a consequence to man's sin, not just physical death, but spiritual death. You see, there is a literal place called hell, and those who die without Christ spend an eternity separated from God. We need to stop thinking about death as ceasing to exist. No, we are created by God to live forever. These bodies will not live forever, but our essence, our soul, and our spirit live on for all of eternity. We are created for eternity. And God, knowing that we were going to be in great need, to be rescued, he placed in his word. Right after, you know what happens? Even, even when God is bringing down the judgment upon Adam and Eve. You remember when we got spanked? Uh, I don't know if your parents were like mine, but my parents believed in that proverb, spare the rod, spoil the child. I mean, I, I think that that was, that was uh, lamb blasted all over my, my mom's house. It, it was in frames. It was everywhere. That was the scripture we learned. One of the first scriptures I learned, spare the rod, spoil the child. But every time she spanked me, every time my dad spanked me, I love you. I didn't understand that. If you love me, then why are you beating me? But you see, the reason why they beat me was because I did something wrong. There were consequences to my actions, but, but there was still that, that measure of hope to be reminded that despite the fact that my actions are showing you otherwise, I want you to know that I love you. This is exactly what God does for us in Genesis chapter 3. Right after man sinned, God is bringing the consequence. He's, he's not sparing the rod. He's beating them up. He's saying this is the consequence. You're going to have pain in childbirth. You're going to have to rule and there's going to be thorns all over the ground when you're trying to, when you're trying to plant your food. There, there, there's going to be death that enters in now. You're going to die not only physically but spiritually. And then he says, but I also want you to know that despite this consequence that I'm having to give to you, I want you to know that I deeply, deeply, deeply love you. And right in the context, right there in the verses that we find God issuing out his judgment upon Adam and Eve, he gives us Genesis 3.15 that says that the seed of the woman will 
bust, will break, will crush the head of the serpent. To, to put that in the English language, a virgin will give birth, a seed of a woman, the virgin will give birth, and the man-child from that birth, from that virgin, will crush the head of Satan. From the very beginning, right after sin occurred, God gave that measure of hope and life. People say, how in the world was Adam saved? How is Adam going to be in heaven if, if Jesus came thousands of years after Adam? The, the writer of Hebrews tells us people in the Old Testament were saved the same way people today are saved, by placing their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Adam didn't know his name was Jesus. Nor did Isaiah, nor did Jeremiah, nor did Abraham. But they were looking forward to that Messiah who is said over and over and over and over again in Scripture. The Messiah is talked about over and over and over and over again. So following Jesus' death, you, you, you understand this, right? Everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to one event. The, the Passover was simply just a, a precursor to the Passover on the cross. You understand that? The lamb that was slain and the blood that was put on the lentils and the doorposts of the, of the home, that, that was a picture of Jesus. When Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, that, that was a picture of Jesus. The, the, the man that would be crucified that Isaiah talked about hundreds of years before crucifixion even took place, that, that was speaking of Jesus, right? The, the, the one that, that David talked about, the one that da Jeremiah talked about, the one that Ezekiel talked about, the one that Micah talked about, all these prophecies, all these prophets, and, and from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the very end of the Old Testament, everything is pointing toward Jesus, the cross and the resurrection. But then on the flip side, once the cross and resurrection took place, used to, they would look forward to that. Now we don't look forward, now we look back. Everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to the cross. Everything following the cross, the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, the right, all, all the New Testament are pointing back to the cross. You, you understand that the cross was a major thing, right? I mean, even 2016, the, the, our, our, our numbering system, our, our, annual, our, our calendar system is based off of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You get that, right? It's all, it's all right there with Jesus. It was a, a, a massive, huge moment in history. All of this, from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, it was all about Jesus. In verse 16, Paul says, that God had orchestrated from the very beginning when man sinned all the way to the cross, that God had done all of this. He moved all of this. He moved all of history. And then he says in verse 16, and oh, by the way, salvation is a free gift. That's not my word. That's the words of Paul. He says it's a free gift. Salvation costs a great deal to the purchaser, but it's completely free to the receiver. You know, Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. This tells us the action of Adam led to everyone's sin, but Jesus' one action leads to everyone's potential for life. Adam affected everyone. We know that Jesus' action is also for everyone too. John three sixteen: for God so loved only a certain group of people. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God always provides a rescue plan. He always offers a way out. Thirdly, finally, and very quickly, 
grace reigns in life. Adam messed it up. He messed up life. He ruined it. Jesus rescued life. And now what we have is grace can reign in life, verses 20 through 21. The power of grace, grace is the unmerited favor of God, is receiving something that we did not earn. We receive that which we didn't deserve because of what Jesus has done for us. Later in Romans 7, 7, Paul will write that apart from the law, we would not have known the nature of sin. That the law was never intended to provide salvation. The law's purpose, Romans 7, 7, the law's purpose is to simply show, convince people of their need for salvation. Law increased sin. That's the sad story of humanity estranged from God. Law, the law increased people's awareness of sin. But where sin increased, verse 20, grace abounded all the more. God lavished his grace upon us beyond all measure. His grace exceeded immeasurably the human sin. If we could somehow measure sin and we could come up with a number and say sin equals 100, then grace measures 1 million. By, by, by only understanding the depths of human degradation can we hope to grasp, even in part, the surpassing wonder of divine forgiveness. God didn't have to do what he did. And we certainly don't deserve what he did. But as great as our sin was, God doubled down and with his grace and poured it out over and over and over again. So what does this mean for us? What's our takeaway here today? Our takeaway is no matter where you find yourself right now, no matter your struggle, your hang-up, your problem, your situation, the grace of God meets you at your point of need. But it's up to you to accept it. God offers it. Are you willing to accept it?